Diana and Kelly Lindsay, welcome to the new school. Thank, Thank you, you very much. So you have a, a wonderful story together, um, and there are many places that we could start, but you are uh, the authors of a forthcoming book, Something More Than Hope, Surviving Despite the Odds, Thriving Because of Them. And what started this was in April 2006, Diana, you were diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, and the odds of your making it five years were 1%. And so the question you asked was, how do I make it into the 1% club? And the answers uh, you and your husband Kelly discovered about the healing power of love, joy, the body's astonishing ability to communicate its needs down to the cellular, cellular level have kept you both in, uh, in, in abundant health for seven years and changed your lives. Um, just a word of background, you met um, uh, when uh, Kelly was a biology major and you were a dance and music major at Stanford University. Uh, you've been married 40 years taught college students and children, you've been global activists, and built your own uh, marketing firm, uh, Lindsay Communications, which is a strategic marketing and consulting company that helps Fortune 100s to, uh, startups to understand their customer needs and build teams to uh, help them. Uh, so we're here today to, um, uh, at your home uh, in uh, Freeland on Whidbey Island to talk a little about your experience, uh, both with the two of you and with a community of your friends who are gathered in your living room with us. So, so Diana, let me ask you to start. Um, in April, do you start the story in April 2006? What, what's the, the brief version of... Uh, what happened and, and uh, what's, what's the brief version of, of the diagnosis and the early treatment? It did start in April 2006. Right. I was diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer. It had spread to both lungs, we thought, around my heart, we thought, and into my brain. Uh, there were three lesions at the time. Um, that's one of those moments that just land on you, but it takes a little bit for them to land. It takes a week or two or three. I was lucky. It took about a week before all of that um, information was, was delivered to me. And there were a lot of very important things that took place between the time of first knowing and really knowing. And I think they were critical to, um, to my being able to actually still be here. Mm -hmm. And many of the people in this room here with us were, were critical to that. Mm -hmm. um, the very first thing that I did was understand that it was important to clear the decks, mm -hmm. that I had just been kicked off the proverbial cliff, and it was going to take all of who I was uh, to be able to to take a step forward, even just one step forward. So we took a leave of this business so that we could focus full-heartedly on that. Um, family was the first part of that essential knowing, and then friends. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we invite, I don't know if you want me to jump right into some of the critical things, which was a love-in. 
Mm-hmm. Not not necessarily the first thing you think of when you when you mm-hmm. you're diagnosed with cancer, but um, my friends have always been a critical part of of our life and of who we are and our sense of community. And yet, I despaired, actually, of how on earth I could possibly tell them all what had just happened. It just seemed too overwhelming. Mm too exhausting. I All of my resources were just evaporated with that kind of a diagnosis. So I thought on a really practical level, if I could just invite everybody to come for an open house, I'd only have to stand up for two hours to, um, to, to tell them the news. Instead, 125 people poured down this hill carrying a washtub base, music, guitars, picnic tables, food, and we sang and danced for six hours. Um, and that made all the difference, all the difference. Because in that moment, I realized from the time it started to the time it ended, I felt better. There'd been no medical intervention. There'd been no pills, no chemo, no radiation, just love, just joy. And I go, this is what makes me feel better. So when I walked into the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance the next day uh, and found out there was no cure, that I had three to six months to live, 12 on the outside, that the odds were 1% of making it to 5%, I go... Well, this isn't the entire picture. Odds were one percent of making it to five years. To five years. Yeah, right. Yeah. Kelly, what was that moment of diagnosis and and the gathering that Diana described like for you? Well, uh, diagnosis is absolutely horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. run flat into this wall with uh, mm-hmm. you know no future to speak of. I'm not as a full believer in science and medicine in particular. So there's no, you know, there's nothing in me that would doubt this, you know, diagnosis or prognosis. So all of a sudden here we're, you know, kind of working our butts off trying to see how we're going to get to retirement and da-da-da-da-da. And all of a sudden that's just completely off the table. So it was a, I mean, absolutely devastating few weeks at that point. Um, And the idea of having this love in was even worse. I mean, it was just, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was to be at some some party, you know. So, uh, I, you know, Diana said we jumped into this, she meant wholeheartedly, and she said foolheartedly accidentally, but I'm kind of thinking foolheartedly was more accurate, probably. Um, but this party was, you know, as she described it, just kind of this amazing amazing thing where everybody just kind of stepped out of their life. and So it was the last thing you wanted to have some kind of love in. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, I just couldn't imagine. So, I, I wasn't the only one. <laughs> of the 120 people that came, 120 people didn't want to come either, I would think. <laughs> I mean, nobody wanted to come to this. I mean, everybody was humoring Diana, which she's good at having people do. Um, but everybody played by the rules. You know, nobody talked about medicine. Nobody talked about the dire outlook. Everybody showed up in bell bottoms and, you know, flower print shirts and... Um, but the, the effect afterwards was just remarkable. I mean, here it was. She could hardly stand up without coughing. And then she was feeling great, dancing, singing, and, you know, and got this idea, this joy protocol that she was going to do this every day. And it's kind of like, I mean, I do look at, 
cause and effect kind of things, and it was, you know, it seemed like a pretty direct correlation. She was mm -hmm. having a good time. She's feeling good. Uh, this is something to pursue. But I thought it was a short-term thing. I, mean, I just thought, okay, this is great. She feels great. She probably isn't great, but she feels great, and that's better than what it was before. So it was still a, you know, it was just an encouraging moment and a, one of the first of many things of, wow, that sure turned out better than I thought it would. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, I've had seven years of those now. So, that, yeah. uh, you know, it was, diagnosis was horrible. Prospect of the party was horrible, and the result was surprisingly mm -hmm. wonderful. Yeah. You know, just a, so, Diana, take us forward from the diagnosis and the party into the treatment. What was the treatment all about? What did you go through? Um, the... I'm talking about the medical treatment. Medical treatment. There is a beautiful thing that happens when you're diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And that is, there is not a known cure. And there's no known way through. So you don't have to face this issue of should I adopt a protocol that is clearly tough, as most cancer patients do? Um, you, there, there was no gold at the end of the rainbow. And so my doctor took a look at me and he said, you're not like my usual patient. I thought that was absolutely brilliant of him to... As a doctor, listen to observe in just these brief conversations that we have and to get a sense of the individual sitting there dangling her legs at the end of the examining table. And he saw that I had health. It's, I mean, it's an ironic thing to say, but I had been traveling the world for business. And he goes, I'm not going to take that health away quite yet. I think it was what he was thinking in, in the back of his mind. And so he put me on a new targeted therapy called Tarsiva, which in, in 2006 was quite new. It had just come off clinical trials. And it had a whopping 11.7 success rate for two months. That was a little disturbing when I went online and found that out. So it was certainly not the great hope that was going to solve everything. But the great advantage of it is for the reason that its, its success rate was so low, they found later, was because you needed to have a certain mutation for it to work well. I had that mutation, although at the time they couldn't prove it. And so those who have that mutation get much better results. 50 to 60% can get up to a year. Um, and so my doctor put, it, put me on that with the hope that it would just stabilize me. He ordered gamma knife radiation for my brain a week later, and both of those are do the least harm. That was really the gift that he gave me, do the least harm. So that I then would be free, still healthy, and still with the vitality to devote the energy to boosting my immune system and restoring myself to health so that my healthy cells were capable of doing the fight that they needed to do. 
the really interesting thing was that between the MRI and the gamma knife, there was only one week. And during that week, one of the lesions left. So there were three. When they went to do the procedure, there were only two that they could find. So at that point, had you already started the Tarsiva? I had. I'd been on Tarsiva five days. Five days. Mm -hmm. You'd been on Tarsiva five days, and how? And then the gamma knife uh, scan was five days later. Yeah. So at that point, one of the three brain lesions disappeared. Disappeared. So we don't know what combination of love and Tarsiva contributed to that. We do not, nor do the doctors. Mm. And there was actually another thing that entered into this, Mm. which I felt was this conversation that I began with my body. Mm -hmm. The night after my biopsy, um, I was, well, during the biopsy, I'm lying on the table coming out of the haze of a biopsy, and the surgeon had the infinite grace to tell me that it was stage four inoperable and walk out the room at a time when there was no other family member around. Mm-hmm. It was not, not a great moment in medical care. <laughs> and so lying in bed that night was really the low point for me. And for a, a reason that has a lot to do with one of the brilliant therapists that's here in this room... I just had the idea to say, lung, lung woman, how are you? Are you really as bad as everybody says you are? And I had this image come to mind, just like, just like an Instagram sent from my body of a woman in the dark lying on the tarmac with a giant boulder on her chest. I rushed to her. You can't do that on Instagram. You know, I guess that's virtual reality. I rushed to her, try to lift the boulder up. I can't. I crawl underneath it with her and say, I will wait with you for the emergency medical team to arrive because I have a sense of a helicopter in, in the dark, in the distance. And while we're lying there, this amazing thing happens. Twelve protective figures come popping out of my body and form this protective circle around me, announcing, as they do, we are the healthy organs of your body and we will wait with you. There's really very little in my life before <laughs> that would ever indicate that I would do this, that I, that I would even ask, that I would see this, and that I would trust it. But it was so like my CTs, it, that big, massive boulder uh, that was my left lung, that I go, whoa. But that's a scary image. I, I focused more on the scare than I did on the fact that there were these 12 protective organs. But that, they were why I invited people to come to my house. I hoped 12 would come. I didn't expect the 125. And when I had the brain first brain MRI that showed the three lesions, I go, well, all right, let's try this again. Where's brain woman? And at that point, my body goes, look, we're done with this 
body by body stuff. It's you. You know, your whole system is in trouble. In fact, I was being held by one of these figures like Jesus in the Pieta, who you recall was dead. Not so encouraging. But nevertheless, I go, the boulder's gone. So I did take it as encouraging. So each night for the rest of that week, so about, about seven nights, I would just go back in and say, how are we today? And each day, we were a little bit better. Mm, amazing. So let's stay with this theme for a minute. First of all, I'm struck that 12 figures emerged. And I'm somewhat struck that 125 <laughs> people came. So there's this 12 and 120 theme. And then you mention uh, the Pieta and Jesus. And I wonder, uh, because we'll get more into this, what is the religious or spiritual or philosophical background that you brought to this moment before you began exploring a lot of other things? Who were you religiously, spiritually, philosophically going into the moment at which these figures begin to emerge? Not the person I am today. I understand I will that. Tell, tell you that. I was raised Episcopalian, mm-hmm. so that's why I would have the reference to the Pieta. I went to school in Europe, I actually saw the Pieta, mm-hmm. which I feel was much more important to me than my religious background. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had left the church, mm-hmm. I I think I've, I I left all churches out of a a disenchantment with a exclusivity. Mm-hmm. I think that I have always had a strong spiritual side, but you could not have asked me at the time to explain it. So what, when you were a child, to. what is your first memory of an experience of spirit that you can remember? Oh, that's a beautiful question. And I think it's a really relevant question. I think nature, for me, is that moment, mm-hmm. is that place. Mm-hmm. Um I spent a great deal of my youth out in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, I f- also felt that spirituality in family. I found it in music. I found it in dancing. Mm-hmm. I found it in many experiences of joy. I found it in traveling the breadth of the human experience. So that's where I, where I would have gone. What was your childhood like? Was it a relatively happy one or a difficult one? My childhood Mm -hmm. was a happy one. My adolescence was trauma-filled. How so? Um, Abuse. Abuse in the family? Uh, Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And so you were carrying that history of abuse into your... Was it remembered straight through or was it recovered abuse? Remembered. Uh Uh-huh. So you were carrying that through into adulthood. Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you have a sense that that history of abuse was part of the pattern that led to the cancer or not? Pro- 
Probably, yes. Mm -hmm. um, also what saved me mm -hmm. in, How so? in the beautiful way that life works. Mm -hmm. I think the, the pattern would be an undergoing, underlying stress mm -hmm. that, um, mm -hmm. you know, I, what I've come to believe is cancer happens to us all all the time, mm -hmm. but our bodies have the capacity to overcome it. Um, I've just found out in a curious stroke of fate that I actually am missing one of the genes that is our normal first line of defense, which is probably why I've gotten two cancers. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very rare. There's 18 of us in the world that have this exact mutation. So, you know, most of the time... 18 of you in the world? Well, 18 in the international database. 18 people or percent? People. And, but the international database is not the sample of the world. It's 18 in the international right. database. Right. How big is the international database? I don't know. Okay. 20 people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm learning. I'm learning. Okay. Anyway, so... You, so in any case, you said that in some beautiful way, it also helped you. How did it help you? Well, it helped me because I learned resilience. Mm -hmm. You know, at a long, young age, mm -hmm. I, I just learned to mm -hmm. pick myself up, dust myself off, and start all over again. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I also learned, and this is another really fascinating thing, a, a compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. You know, the ability at the time, I called it the night child and the day child, the, you know, the, the ability to put aside what isn't so great mm -hmm. because you know that you have a goal mm -hmm. to go towards. Mm -hmm. And that is very helpful mm -hmm. <laughs> in the first mm -hmm. days of a cancer diagnosis mm -hmm. uh, to be able to do that compartmentalization. Mm -hmm. Um, Good. Maybe that's a place. So, so that takes us through the the first stage of treatment. Uh, talk a little now about what integrative or alternative therapies you began to explore. I think Kelly would like to tell you right. about our first experience. Wonderful. Which I'd was, love to hear uh, from Kelly. Uh, well, uh, at this love-in, we had somebody who could not show up email us a energy treatment plan that involved mm. holding Dinah's fingers and toes in a certain mm. sequence. And mm. so we'd hold Dinah's fingers and toes in this certain way. And uh, This was called what? What was the treatment called? Fingers and toes, as far as I know. No, but I mean, <laughs> I oh, it's Jinshin Jitsu. Jinshin Jitsu is, is right. what it's derived yeah, exactly. from. It's a Jinshin yeah, yeah. Jitsu, probably harmonizing something. Mm -hmm. um, but she just she just told us to do this, and you know that was going to help cure dying of cancer. So we're ma mainly just thinking this is a nice thing for people to sit here and be able to chat with Diana for mm -hmm. five or ten minutes in a way. Well, and and touch her and hold her. So mm -hmm. I mean that would be a totally awkward <laughs> if you didn't have something like this to do. And then uh, and then somebody noticed that her coughing completely stopped anytime somebody gave her one of these treatments. Mm -hmm. So and she was coughing a lot before then. Uh, so that I mean that got my attention because it was. I mean, there's a cause and effect thing too. I, mean, I don't know how that works. So we, you know, we just started doing this and looking more and more into Jinshin Jitsu and other energy healing treatment plans. That's really kind of what saved me as a caregiver. Is this gave me a place to kind of contribute in her in her healing rather than just feeling totally helpless, which I think is a very common caregiver affliction. Um, you know, this is a very nice, intimate 
thing that involved touch and, you know, I don't know how it works and got more into Qigong and Reiki and other things like that, still not knowing what the mechanics are behind it, but not being too worried about knowing what those are. So in, in the slides for a talk that you give on this, the two of you give together, you talk about how going into this, you were a businessman, very kind of results-oriented, very factual, mm-hmm. and how the movement into this, starting with this Jinshin Jitsu treatment and the love-in, mm-hmm. totally blew your worldview apart. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Apart. I mean, I, very mechanistic view, you know, there's mm-hmm. a way to figure out how things work. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was raised in a family that, you know, if something broke, you figured out how it worked and fixed it. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the ongoing thing is here's something broke, you try to figure out and fix it. And here's something I could not, I couldn't fix or it didn't seem like I could fix. So what was it like for you to go through this experience of having your worldview blown apart by a series of, of uh, healing uh, modalities that you had no reason to trust or expect to have any effect. What what impact did it have on you? <laughs> um, well, it was. Uh, I'll just say it. I mean, I would think I was totally ambivalent about it at the beginning. You know, mm-hmm. here's something that seemed to be working, but I couldn't explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was better than where I was. I mean, this wonderful scientific medical worldview that I had always supported and fully believed in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I just gradually came to feel that, okay, well, that's just part of the, that's part of the story. That's so you were a biology story. major yeah. at Stanford, so you were committed to a oh, yeah. scientific... Yeah, I had some vested program. interest in you had uh, vested the way interest. things work. Right. I thought I was going to explain how this was working. And, yeah, and, and when we get back to those three lesions going to two, you know, I was having some other models and mechanisms in my head about mm-hmm. how that might have happened. Mm-hmm. In Diana's mind, it was, you know, she meditated away and that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of discussing how did this thing disappear is what took us to Sari for a session. Mm-hmm. I got dragged there. I got to admit I got dragged okay. there. Um, <laughs> but it was really the best thing to happen at that very early stage because it was, you know, we came away from that saying this is Diana's story and however she wants it to be is how it's going to be, whether I agreed with it or not. And that... Uh, you know, really was the pivotal mm-hmm. lesson. So from then on, I really had no choice than, okay, just get on board with it. But, you know, I got on board with it pretty half-heartedly at the beginning. I just mm-hmm. kept all my reservations to myself until we started getting these, you know, weird results from the energy, hands-on healing, whatever it was. And then it was kind of, you know, I'm fascinated by new things. Here's a new thing. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a brand new thing to try. And so that, uh, you know, kind of occupied my mind and trying to figure out more of these ways to work with her. And it was just very pleasant. It just was a really good thing. I started with a, I mean, I fell into these. I mean, Sari's suggestion that we just go with her story, the Jinshin happening so quickly, the results from, uh, you know, the, the lesion disappearing, the results of the first CT, it all was just kind of very quick in the first month to six weeks. Uh, good positive feedback that something was working in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's not a whole lot of sense in sticking with the she's going to die in six months to 12 months mm-hmm. thing. Um, not a lot of future in that. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, but it was still a gradual thing. I think still behind, you know, there's part of me still thinking that, well, they're probably right, but this is kind of prolonging it and maybe it's going to be later. You know, it's probably a year into it before I started thinking 
Mm-hmm. There probably is another way out of this. So over time, have you made any effort to integrate your biology science frame with the new information that has come in? Uh, yeah, I, I try to do that a lot, and I thought, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna be the first guy to join this Eastern and Western medicine mm-hmm. thing. There's got to be a link here somewhere, and I'm not the first guy to try that. There's people who've done it. I don't understand what they've written. Um, mm-hmm. After a while, it was like I'm not sure they can be integrated. I think they're just two totally separate ways of mm-hmm. looking at the world, and um, I don't think we can in Western medicine the way we have the clinical trials and the way we do blind studies and all that, and reductionist analyzes variable against that result mm-hmm. lends itself well or at all to trying to test how any of these other more Eastern right. healing techniques work. So it's like that's a there's no sense in going down that road when you can't measure whatever you're mm-hmm. trying to measure and you don't even know what it is. So I don't know what it is. I think we just don't. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to me that we think of the non-science dimension of healing as Eastern, whereas in fact mm-hmm. there's a tremendous Western tradition of, of healing as well. It's just an interesting trope that we have, you know, that we well, frequently yeah, use. I mean, you were using... the, I've dismissed all the Western ones as just crazy la la land people. <laughs> I mean, Eastern is exotic <laughs> and foreign. I mean, totally fine. It's got to come in through the back door or something. <laughs> so, Diana, where did it move forward from there? You, you, you went in for the gamma knife surgery. One of the lesions had disappeared. You had the jinshinzutsu. You had the love-in. You began to explore these things. You worked with your therapist. You and Kelly agreed that you were going to go with your story. He was going to keep his reservations to himself. How did it go forward from there? Well, game on. You know, I think that was enough to get me going. Mm-hmm. And um, so... I I consider that my doctor's job, well, <laughs> the critical thing in this is, to, is a change in the doctor-patient relationship. When my doctor said he couldn't cure me, I figured, well, that, that didn't necessarily mean I couldn't be cured, only that he didn't know the way. Mm-hmm. And so if I proverbi- proverbially was going to go to New York... Maybe he could get me over the Cascade Mountains. Maybe he could get me to Denver. None of us really knew whether we'd end up in a meadow in New Jersey together. Um, But he couldn't get me all the way. So I had to contribute. So where was I going to start? I didn't, we didn't have a background in other integrative healing modalities. So I didn't know to start there. I had had cancer 15 years before and had seen the miracle food cures of the time later be dismissed as actually even potentially harmful. So I wasn't really inclined to make all of my solutions be dietary. So I came back to the lovin' and I said, well, you know, if love and joy make me feel better, let's start there. So what do I love and what makes me joyful? And I went back to my youth to get the answers to those questions. You know, there's something about remembering what you did when you were 21 and completely invincible, right, with no sense ever of being mortal, that are great um, places to look. I found a book by Larry Dossie mm-hmm. called The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, and that was such a revelation. 
he took music, for example. I was a music major, and he explained how people had achieved all kinds of benefits from music. It could be reduced heart pressure. It could be increased performance in the surgical table. It could be reduced pain. It could be coming out of a coma. There were lots of things that these normal, everyday things had power. And so I just started adding them up with this idea that if, you know, I could add them up until I was counted out. Mm-hmm. And what I found was that each one was like a helix itself, that it just kept growing in its power. Love was my community. I realized then I could go back in time to any community I'd ever been part of. I went back, I thanked them. I went on gratitude tours and thanked mm-hmm. people personally. Um, joy started walking with a granddaughter on my chest. And then I found that I could walk nine miles in Mount Rainier with friends. Every step had had another step behind it. Um, and then this amazing inner dialogue started to rapidly change and evolve itself. Mm-hmm. You want to go down there? Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> okay. So the... After these initial set of imagery that got us to Gamma Knife, I go, this is something I want to pursue. But I wasn't trained in meditation. I would pick up a book and it would tell me to be mindful. And I found it absolutely impossible to do. Absolutely impossible. You're supposed to get your brain to quiet. You're supposed to clear out. And all you get is... You're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die, coming in over you. So that really was not working. (laughs) But this ability to go in and ask my body to get still for the fraction of a second it took to make the connection, to make that Skype connection, because these started to feel like Skype conversations, with my body, I could do that. I could get that still. And often, music was was sort of my Sherpa guide over into the right side of my brain. And Kelly's touch was. When Kelly started to learn Jinchen Jitsu, and he's not telling you about the Barbie doll that he, that the, or was it the Ken doll, that he took the hair off and drew all of the meridians and points on and the index cards he had in his shirt pocket with every single Jinchen Jitsu point. I mean, this man studied. Um, the combination of music and his touch just helped me, it was like a running partner, prolong the amount of time that I could stay in a quiet state. And so these images that my body had been giving me, these kind of instant images, could prolong. And they started to become like ballets, like mm. break dances, like joyful, exuberant dancing. As a choreographer, I could recognize that. I could remember it. I could keep track of it. This was just the language I'd been taught since I was five years old. And so when my body wanted to communicate with me as badly as I wanted to communicate with it, it chose a language we could understand. Mm. I don't think it's a language for everybody. You know, one lung biologist said, I think it'll be rugby if I ever get sick. (laughs) You know, and I've known other cancer patients that have had ants or swords people or... You know, many different 
kinds of metaphors that speak to them. But for me, it was dance. And at first, I just thought, well, you know, thank God, I'm, I'm not in a panic. I have this five minutes, this 10, this 15, this 20 minutes where my world is not falling apart. Fantastic. Mm. But then I noticed that out of all of the possible range of movement, they're actually only doing one thing. And that is they're stomping on my lung because everything had miniaturized by this point, as if there were bubble wrap all over this floor, and they were, by gum, going to stomp into everyone. Well, interestingly, I, when I started to research Tarsiva, realized that's what Tarsiva does. It's just aimed at one receptor on the end of a cell. All it does is come in and fill that receptor up before a little energy molecule happens to be called ATP, lands and causes the cell to communicate a bad message. So Tarsiva isn't really a very active agent. All it's doing is stomping. And I go, well, that's funny. That's what my inner dancers are doing. That's what my drug is doing. That's just plain funny. That's where I took it at first. Well, the interesting thing was my cancer shrunk in half and my doctor couldn't believe it. This was nowhere in his worldview that my cancer could shrink in half. It's not what the Tarsiva is designed to do. It's not what it's designed to do. So then I go, okay, let's up the ante. Let's meditate some more morning and night. And then it was fascinating because this inner space of my lung, this inner cavity started to be filled with bubbles. All of the stomping, each time they stomped, the dancers released bubbles. Well, that just seemed totally fanciful to me. But then at an airport, I saw a a magazine on the rack that said cancer cures and had a picture of apoptosis, which is the process of cell death. And if you've ever seen those pictures, it's just a big supply of bubbles because the cancer cell, like all cells, is made primarily of water. So that's interesting, but again... You know, I'm not really making much of a connection. So then the dancers say, well, you can't have all these bubbles hanging out here. You have to spend as much effort getting rid of the waste of the cancer as you are killing the cell in the first place. It's really important to keep the environment clean. So they bring in poles Acrobats bring in pole vault type poles that the bubbles can evacuate up out of like a like a barber pole. I go, surely this is preposterous. Mm-hmm. And uh, two years later, when I shared these images with a major researcher at the University of Washington, he said, you know, there was a study done in the 90s. It was controversial, but your pictures look exactly like hyaluronin. Mm-hmm. And hyaluronin is the way the body macrophages come in and eat up the cancer debris. And just last month, researchers tied hyaluronin to why naked mole rats don't get cancer. So I thought this is really starting to get interesting because at each of these junctures, the cancer shrunk in half. So it was pretty much what was going on in my body. So the combination of this joy protocol, this love protocol, this meditation, Kelly's touch, this cancer kept shrinking, 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 until finally uh, it went to just a stable mass. And at that point, the imagery was of dancers trying to stomp on lava. You know, that doesn't work too well. 
tap shoes aren't going to really cut it to break down lava. And I've, I've seen pictures of scar tissue that look exactly like pictures of lava does. So I think, actually, that was the moment where it went, it went inert, but not for long. I had another meditation. This one said that the dancers or these protective figures had encountered a type of cell that they had never encountered before, that you could not, it didn't respond to stomping, that you couldn't get around its edges, that you had to get in the center of it to know its true nature, and that the way to destroy it was by radiation. This meditation was in February. Six months later, CT showed that the cancer was growing again. I asked another researcher at the U, between the time a mutation occurs and it's large enough to see on a CT, how long does it take? And he goes five to six months, which is exactly what it was. And the interesting thing was, again, two years later, uh, there was tissue genetically tested that said, yes, this is a new mutation. It's a resistance to Tarceva. It does not respond to Tarceva, which is an outer cell device. There is still no treatment that gets to the inside of, of this mutation. Um, so that was the moment that it, that it was back and, and we needed to have a change of plan. And what did you do then? Well, my doctor came in and said, it's time to uh, have chemo. And I said, no, because <laughs> I've had a dream. And I think we need to have cyberknife radiation. Now, this is one of those interesting conjunctures between our left and our right brains. I had been reading the cancer care newsletter throughout this whole time, and any time there was any article whatsoever that might help me at some point in the future, I just cut and pasted and put it in a document. That document was 70 pages long. The press release on Cyberknife was one of those 70 pages. I have no idea how in the terror of the doctor's moment when they tell you cancer's back that I came up with it, but I believe it was my unconscious did because it had linked it to that dream. Um, and so I said, no, it's got to be radiation. My doctor goes, no, this is a systemic problem. That's a local treatment. The horse is already out of the barn. No can do. So Kelly and I, our solution to that was to put our tandem bicycle and our canoe on top of our car and go paddle down a river and capsize twice. <laughs> but nevertheless, the doctor calls back that day and says, okay, I talked to my partner, we'll give it a try. Mm. Now, interestingly, this spring, so we're talking five and a half years later, there is a study that says when Tarceva mutates, local therapy is helpful if the mutation is in a local spot. So my body was right. And happily, my doctor was willing to, to go along with it. So that gave us nine months. It's a very expensive procedure. It was experimental at the time. Um, insurance didn't pay for it. But we got nine months. But when the cancer came back, we go, 
Now what? And at that point, I had another dream. This dream said, let nature take care of it. And it was a very fascinating dream because it was all nature images. This one was an alligator's back. Well, you can guess what that is. There's a family of otters that run to watch. There's an eagle and an owl that run to watch. And there's two twin horses that stand at the end of the driveway holding the alligator at bay and say, let nature take care of it because in two months, the emergency medical teams are going to be concerned that the school children are going to pass by and this alligator is going to get out. And that's not going to be good for the alligator. So Kelly, at that point, um, and I switched from Jinshin Jitsu, which we had been doing. Kelly learned Reiki, and I had been learning Qigong, and we decided that, that we were up to the task of trying to keep that alligator at bay by using the twin horses of Reiki and Qigong. And that was the spiritual experience. Well, so was the loving, but... <laughs> This was such an astonishing experience of being so connected to all of life that at any moment I could be in a room and say, where is the most healing power in this room? You know, we can see right here. It's these beautiful faces in front of us. But it could be a tree. It could be the bird. It could be that beautiful grandchild. It could be the wheels of the car. Somewhere there is healing power, and I can access it. I can dial directly into it, and it and I can have this loop where it can give to me, and I can give to it, and I can get better. And, and we got another nine months. What happened after that? Another dream. This time... The dream was uh, the night before I was to go into the doctor. And there is this very highfalutin plane that the pilot sits on the top operating the controls like a steam shovel. And the doctor in the dreams comes in, says, your cancer's back, and shoots me in the back and says, I'm going to recommend... VATS, which is video-assisted thoracic surgery in which somebody operates the surgical equipment like a steam shovel. The next day, the doctor walks in, says, the cancer's back, and I'm going to recommend VATS. And not only that, the surgeon I'm going to recommend is named Mike Mulligan. (laughs) Who could could believe that? But then I had another dream that next night, which was that I should go underwater dancing. Now, what the heck was that? But I interpreted it that it was to stay in this kind of beautiful place that we'd been in, in the deep underwaters of the unconscious, and see if we could continue to make it happen. And the the dichotomy between those two dreams sent me really on a month-long search we went through uh, the surgeon and the radiation oncologist and the regular oncologist, met with Sari dream after dream, trying to get clarity. Sari being your therapist. Being my therapist, mm-hmm. trying to get clarity around what is it that my body wanted me to do. And I was at every doctor that I went to said, 
there is no real way to make this decision. You're now in the one in a thousand club. There is no evidence. There's just a bunch of people with opinions. And one doctor had the brilliance to say, you know, what does your body say? You're going to need to trust it, which, of course, I did already. And so when I had the image of my lung diving out of my chest, falling on the ground, and this protective figure putting her hand in to uh, stop the bleeding, I go, well, it's, it's got to be surgery. And it was. That was four years ago, and I've been uh, free of disease ever since. Oh. So I have to say... I mentioned to you and our community here before we started the conversation that the context for me of this conversation is that I've been doing these week-long retreats for cancer patients at Collinwheel for 28 years, 170 of them, and probably 20 more on the East Coast at our center there. And um, I've talked to thousands of people and have seen um, a number of long-term survival experiences. Uh, and often they are this combination of medical therapies that weren't expected to do as much as they end deep inner work. But I don't think I've ever in uh, 28 years heard someone who had an ongoing series of Dreams of such um, such power. Um, what do you make of these dreams? I believe that it's. It's the body speaking to me. It's my cells speaking to me. I believe that we are evolutionarily at a point where the veil between our conscious and our unconscious is just being dipped a bit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be dipped a lot. It, it's just being dipped a bit. Here's my great scientific uh, reasoning for this. Mm -hmm. My friends do yoga. <laughs> None of my friends were raised in families that did yoga. None of my friends were raised in families that did meditation. And all my friends do something. And we're just, as somebody last week told me, we're just bozos on the bus. You know, we're not monks with 40 years of training. We've all led busy left brain lives. We can be addicted to our iPhones easily, and yet we have this sense that we want to go hang out somewhere else. We want to go hang out in our right brains. And so I just believe that we're all getting this capacity. When I'm in Qigong class now, which is what I do now to keep it from recurring, um, I am just, just astonished by the fact that there can be a room full of people who can feel this esoteric thing called chi and go to such places of peace within their minds and then be able to share with each other what their experience and have it match? I mean, there's nothing in my heritage that would ever say that was possible. So while the, you may have 
not heard this before. I personally feel like this isn't an extraordinary story. I believe this is going to be the new normal, that the that these kinds of images happen to us all the time, but we just don't give it any credit. We don't give it any energy. So what I learned to do, basically, was to trust it. And you can't always trust it. I mean, it's not a beautiful method, which is why we develop left brains, you know? It's got its issues. Um, and its issues have to do, one, with trying to still our brains, where this is like impossible, two, that wishful thinking. We get this thing called wishful thinking in there. You know, we want the light to shine down from the heavens. Chances are that image, you might have done some wishful thinking on it. If I see a bull come rushing in and start stomping on a cell, I go, that image is probably right because I didn't come up with it. And I didn't, you know, I didn't, I I couldn't have come up with it. I couldn't have come up with the pieta, frankly. I mean, maybe. But when the, when an image comes in and it surprises you, it's not what you expect. That's the honest communication. Mm-hmm. Kelly, what what do you make of just the phenomenon of living with this life partner who starts having this whole series of <laughs> revelatory dreams against all probability that actually lead to telling this the oncologist, "I'm sorry, I'm not going to do chemo." I need, you know, cyber radiation. I mean, what, mm-hmm. what, what was it like for you, and what do you conclude as somebody with a science base? Uh, do you conclude the same thing Diana does about how this works, or do you have a different image? Yeah, I've still got to go with it's her story. I can't, uh, if I have reservations, I can't voice them. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well said. Okay. No, actually. We'll leave it right there. <laughs> no, that's just a joke. I, um, <laughs> Well, you know, when she was having these dreams at the beginning, these in these uh, visualizations, you know, I just kind of patiently and indulgently listened to them uh, for a while. But then it, they did start matching up, and you know, when she talked to the head of the lung biology at the U, and he's sitting there taking them seriously, he knows more biology than I do. Mm-hmm. You know, he's seeing a correlation in it. Um, I think by that time also, as far as I mean, she wasn't going against any any advice of the doctors. Um, yeah, I, I was very lucky that she, you know, was trying to heal herself. Um, you know, she had been making some other other choices about okay, the doctors say this, and it's going to work ninety percent of the time. And if she was saying no, I don't want to do that, that probably would have given me pause. But you know, they weren't saying this is going to work. You know, they were admitting defeat right off the bat. So. You know, she had a program, she had a plan. Uh, we were getting great results. This thing looked like it was going to just disappear right in front of us. And, uh, you know, why not go with it? So I, I, I kind of parked my brain about that and started opening up more that there probably is something to this. And I don't know what it is, but. And fast up, you started talking to my cells too. I did talk to your cells. <laughs> I did. Yeah, that is true. I did do that. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't sure they were listening, but apparently they did. They, uh, you know, half of them went away each time. So, yeah, that's true. I did start talking to them. So it's kind of hard to recreate. Uh, you know, when certain things happen, it was kind of this little process that all of a sudden I, I think, you know, I ultimately realized that I just the, the world and the universe just has more of an imagination than I do, and things work out better than what I think they're going to. And, you know, I don't, I mean, when you talk about wishful thinking, I'm against wishful thinking. I'm going to wish for the wrong thing. 
Um, mm. And it'll, I'm going to have to settle for it, and it's going to be less than what it could be. So, mm. I don't know. It's just opened up. It's kind of opened up my view of the world and the way the world, not the way it works, but it works in some more fascinating mm. way than what I anticipate. Um, I still like science. I still like the cosmology. I like all this stuff. You know, I still read it and think about it, but it just doesn't carry the, you know, this is the way it completely is. It's more of a, it's a process of learning how this works, and maybe we'll learn how that works. Maybe not, but... So when your book comes out, how soon will it be out? That's a question. <laughs> this year. This year. Uh, do you have a collective intention or vision of what, how you're going... In other words, you, you've been giving talks about this, mm-hmm. and... Uh, but do you have a collective sense of how central to your lives going forward um, spreading this uh, word is for you? Well, this will be the intention for our lives. Uh-huh. You know, when you live through something like this, in all of its wonder, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I can't not share it. You know, this is a classic example, you probably thought about this, but classic example of the description of the shamanic journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Mircea Eliade's book on it, Michael Harner's work on this. Uh, who is the shaman? Uh, he is a woman or a man, she is a woman or he is a man, who has a life-threatening illness, an initiatory illness. Mm-hmm. The illness brings them down to death's door. While they are down there, something in them says, if I ever recover from this, I'm going to devote my life to helping other people. Um, But what they learn is that um, physical death itself is not the enemy. It is soul loss. Mm -hmm. And that soul loss is becoming disconnected from one's soul. Mm -hmm. And that if they help people to stay connected to the soul... That whatever happens, mm-hmm. whatever happens, there will be a profound healing. And that's the nature of the work that we do. I mean, in other words, if you trust the transformation, you don't know what direction it's going to take you. If it can, it will extend life. And there are certainly, I mean, when you think about when you think about the distribution of outcomes for any given cancer, it's it's a bell-shaped curve. There are people who die way before they were expected to. There are people who die way, way after, or way, way, way after. And so when the oncologists give people predictions, what are they giving you? They're giving you the median or the average survival. Well, when you think about the people on the left-hand side of the curve who die earlier, who are they? They're people getting lousy medical care, who are depressed, who have no sense of an inner locus of control, that they can make a difference in their lives, uh, who may have felt, you know, this is a way out. You know, I've had it. Uh, You know, this allows me to go out. So there are all kinds of things that pull the curve to the left. But then there are the people who engage. And it doesn't matter exactly how they engage, but in ways that make sense to them, they engage with the illness. And from my point of view, it typically has four key elements which, depending on how you think about it, but physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual healing, you know? Or another way of saying it, a slightly different cut, is stress reduction, exercise, uh, uh, diet, and group support. 
And if you look at those four, either physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual healing, or diet, stress reduction, exercise, and group support, what are they? Any human being who starts doing that, what happens? They become a healthier person. So if you have cancer, you become a healthier person living with cancer. Well, what do the pharmaceutical trials tell us about people who are healthier living with cancer? They have to control for quality of life or functional status. Why is it that they have to control for it? Because if they don't recognize that healthier people tend to live longer, their trial gets all screwed up. So in, when I talk to oncologists about this, I say, you know, you know yourselves that you have to you have to track this or you can't tell what the pharmaceutical is and what the internal healing potential is. And they acknowledge that. And so then if you think about it, you know, the quackery stuff is when these claims for cancer cures are made for the alternative therapies. And I'm always deeply saddened when people who don't use effective medical treatments because, as with you, they have so much to offer. But when you integrate that, with a desire to become physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, whatever that means to you, as healthy a person living with cancer as you can be, and you get interested in how far out that distribution curve you can negotiate your way. You don't know the answer to that. You don't know whether you're going to be a 10 or 20 year survival of a stage four cancer. But I will tell you that the people who come on the cancer help program takes a lot of energy to get in the cancer help program. It's like your story. You have to you know, set a week aside. You have to find the money. You have to believe that this is going to make a difference. All kinds of stuff like that. And then the alumni, it is characteristic of the alumni, not all, but it is really characteristic that they outlive their, their prognoses. Why? Because they have an internal sense of uh, agency, of you know, internal locus of control. They get it. The physical, emotional, mental, spiritual work can make a difference. They can become healthier people living with cancer. And lo and behold, they keep showing up year after year. Some of them outlive their oncologists. It's not an unusual thing for somebody to outlive the oncologist who told them they had a year to live or something like that. You know, it's not, not entirely rare. And so we have this community of people... Has it been easy for them? No. Or many of them. I mean, your story is unusual in that you really haven't had a recurrence for what is it now? Four, Four years. years. Four years, right. So, um, but we have a number of 20-year metastatic breast cancer survivors, just to give you an example. And, you know, that's a real fact. Mm-hmm. And, and they are battle-scarred. Mm-hmm. And they haven't necessarily completely eliminated the cancer but they go on living. Mm -hmm. And the point is that when they sit in a room together on alumni days, you know that you are in the presence of of spiritually evolved beings. You know that these people have learned things about life through their suffering. You know, the beautiful quote, um, uh, you know, Dame Edith Sitwell about the poet William Blake. She said... He was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light came, you know. And so we know in all the spiritual traditions, you know, that, uh, that suffering, as one of you was saying in the room, you know, there's both the, there's the, the, the tragic side of it and there's the potential for this opening. And some people uh, really and legitimately can sometimes only see the tragedy, and that is their truth. But other people can find their way to seeing the opening. 
And if you can see the opening, you know, no matter, then I just watch transformation taking place. I watch it. And that's what keeps me, after 28 years, doing the Cancer Help Program, because it is so astonishing to me what is given to us to make possible. But I have not seen, I mean, I've certainly seen people who've had dreams, and I keep a dream journal myself, and I know the power of dreams. And of course, dreams in archetypal psychology from actually going way back to the beginning. If you look at the Bible, you know, when did these, the dreams, you know, that, uh, that guided the patriarchs, you know, and, and, you know, what were angels but messengers who usually came in dreams, right? Mm -hmm. And so that tradition, the shamanic dreams, the, you know, going back to the beginning of the religious traditions and up through the romantic movement and into archetypal psychology and so on, Dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. Um, but it's rare for somebody not only to have dreams of that precision, but be able to interpret them in ways that helped you. I, I use the term dreams, and some were dreams, mm-hmm. literal, literal dreams, but some would be called a meditation and we had an interesting experience. We went to a muse- uh, science museum in Hartford, mm-hmm. and they have this great exhibit where two kids put on headsets, and they're supposed to quiet themselves and out quiet out mm-hmm. and beat the other by being more relaxed. Mm-hmm. So there's this little ball that goes back and forth. So of course, the minute you open your eyes and see where your ball is versus the other guy, you've lost, right? <laughs> you've completely lost your presence. But meanwhile, there's a big uh, monitor that's showing their brain waves and whether they've been able to take them out of our ordinary experience, which is beta waves, into a sort of dream, not um, daydream, mm-hmm. which is alpha waves, and then deeper into theta waves. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting was when I put the headphones on myself, um, my family noticed that I bottomed out the display at theta waves. Oh, that's extremely interesting. So what my hypothesis is, tested only at Mm. the University Mm. of Connecticut, Hartford Science Museum with a bunch of 80 eighth graders nearby, is that perhaps that's what I did, was to go into the theta state. And the theta state, for those who don't know it, is the one up from delta, which is where we sleep. And when we dream, we go into theta. And when we meditate, we go down into theta. So I think that you know when you're in kind of theta land, mm-hmm. you can be coming at it from your dreams or you can be coming down oh, to it through your meditation. And when I got down and the the language of theta waves are is hallucinogenic they call mm-hmm. it it is the visual imagery of of dreams and also of schizophrenia and and many other things but part of our unconscious so that's why i think they the meditations were you know that visual mm-hmm. and but if you come at them from meditation then you remember them easier than you do if they come from mm. dream. Because, right. of course, the challenge in dream is remembering them. But if you're not that asleep, then you can remember them. So many of the, the vivid ones would be by coming through this meditative right. pathway. You know, one other thing I, I need to say, because everybody brings their own strengths and, strengths and challenges to anything, 
But the fact that the two of you had started a communications firm that worked with Fortune 100 companies, and the fact that what you developed, and I mean, it takes a lot to do that, you know, and to make it work. And so you took, both of you took, the business discipline and the seriousness of purpose that you had found in the business world. And you worked with communication. You began this dialogue, this conversation with yourselves and with your body. And, and I see the same seriousness of purpose and intense focus that you brought to your business life playing out both in the dialogue and in the willingness to do all this stuff. Because, you know, it's actually rare that people have the luxury, for one thing, of being able to devote themselves 100% of the time, much less um, the life experience that enables one to commit at that level of seriousness and focus. So these are a number of reasons why. And, and the other thing I want to say is I know people who've committed 100% with all the same skills and so on, and they didn't recover. No. So it isn't a guarantee of any kind. And furthermore, I've known people, I mean, my father's a great example, who was diagnosed with prostate cancer and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and given a year or so to live. And he lived 10 years, but... Um, he didn't do any of the diets, rest, stress reduction, any of that stuff. I mean, you know, he he uh, just kept kept drinking chocolate shakes, and you know, um, you know, and yeah, right. So, but it brings he, you joy. But what he thought <laughs> was that he was a remarkable man, a man named Max Lerner, who wrote a book in his 80s called "Wrestling with the Angel" about mm-hmm. his cancer experience. And I started my cancer work to help him, and he never did any of the stuff that I thought would help, you know, <laughs> which I love because the point is that we all do it our own way. Yeah. But, in, but in your case, you brought this serious... It reminds me of a remarkable Australian named Ian Gawler who had an osteogenic sarcoma and had his leg cut off. And he was a, um, he was a veterinarian and he was a... Um, a triathlon guy, or, or you know, something like a triathlon guy. So, one of the approaches that sometimes works is when you have this capacity for self-discipline honed in business or the rest of your life, and you bring that to healing with that level of focus. That's one way of doing it. And another one, Japanese studies of Japanese uh, long-term complete spontaneous remission people who were farmers with no resources at all, couldn't even afford the surgery, but just surrendered their lives to God. So, you know, God brought me here. God will take me when he wants. I just surrender. And lo and behold, they get these uh, complete remissions. So my sense is there's this infinite variety of ways that, you know, people do this, but it's fascinating to hear yours. I feel that these are times where it's really great to get help. Um, that's that's when I went into therapy to, to try to work through some of those issues. I think it's really real. I think that we should not just let cancer patients go at the end of their treatment and say, bye, see ya. Um, I think that's when a lot of healing still remains to be done. Uh, a lot of the healing in cancer is the healing of a life. And if you go too quickly through treatment, and you come back into that life, and that life hasn't changed. That you know, then what? So it you know it takes it takes time to work out all the relationships, all of the 
essence of the soul journey. Um, and I'm, you know, as you say, extremely grateful that I've had time to work on it. Diana and Kelly Lindsay, thanks for being with us at the New School. Thank you so much, Michael, for having us. And thank you all for coming for this. It's uh, a joy to be here, and I look forward to connecting in the future as it is useful to you. Uh, The website is www.commonweal.org, and the New School website is uh, www.tns for the new school.commonweal.org. And all the 130 podcasts are free. And there's a bunch on healing and cancer. So happy to stay and chat a little bit, but we promised to end at four and we ran 15 minutes over. So thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much.